0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you. Alvis is our guest today, watching their daughter lead our worship team, so that's kind of fun. I've met some other folks that were in here. Obviously, this isn't a COVID rapture this morning, but it's the uh, summer getaway for July 4th, and I uh, want to wish everyone a happy 4th of July. I had... Uh, the normal smart aleck people go, do Canadians celebrate 4th of July? I said, well, it shows up on our calendar every year. I don't know, what do you, what, what do you, what do you want me to say? Uh, but we celebrated July 1st, which is Canada, Canada Day, and we, so we get to double dip and enjoy all the festivities of both countries. So we're uh, glad you're here. Let me uh, invite you to just bow with me in a word of prayer before we step into the text this morning. Well, Father, we thank you for this uh, great freedom and country that we belong to and that we live in. Father, we pray that we'll never take that for granted, to understand the cost of what it meant to gain this freedom and this independence, to be a country that is uh, built on Christian principles, and yet, Father, often, in spite of that, has wandered far away from the realities of its origins. And yet, Father, this is an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus to touch a multitude of lives, to provide hope in the midst of chaos and trouble, uh, the difficult challenges of our culture that uh, we are trying to work through, and ask that you will continue to help us represent Christ well in a broken world. Uh, We would pray that you continue to give us a vision that's not just about ourselves, but it's for those around us that we would continue to enter into dialogue and speak truth and yet demonstrate your grace in the midst of a really chaotic world that is becoming actually more unloving and caring at times. We pray that as we step into your word this morning that you will continue to challenge us in terms of our own boundaries and limitations And we would ask that you will help us to continue to think through these things, not just as a personal level, but also as the body of Christ. So for this, we entrust ourselves to the teaching of your spirit. May you continue to take your word and imprint it deep upon our hearts, not to gather more information, but to understand the next step of obedience that we all need to be taking in, in response to your spirit teaching us truth. And so for all of this, we pray, and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week, my wife and I had a chance to go where we've never gone before and that was to uh, Philadelphia. I had some national board meetings in relationship to our network of churches and so uh, they encouraged us to bring our wives along and so she got to hang out with some of the wives from the board. Uh, We flew out Monday and had board meetings on Tuesday and Wednesday, but Thursday we had a chance to be on our own before we flew back so we went to Philadelphia itself and uh, it's, it's interesting being from the west coast and even from here, they take 4th of July celebration very seriously. It's a place where a lot of history uh, obviously formed and uh, it was fascinating for us. We got there early Thursday morning, scheduled a walking tour of uh, Independence uh, Hall and all the regions in downtown there and thoroughly enjoyed it, just hearing all kinds of things about presidents and Ben Franklin and just all the ebb and flow of becoming an independent country and all that was forged out of it. You know, we, we celebrate kind of the iconic pictures and things that show that July 4th was the day of this independence, But boy, there's a struggle getting there. There was no easy journey trying to forge through and understanding what that was gonna look like. And there was, uh, going through some of the museum exhibits and dealing with some of the cultural tensions was enormously enlightening. Uh, In fact, not being a Canadian, uh, being reminded that Philadelphia used to be the capital of the country at one point for about 10 years was kind of like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Um, And just things like that that would not only entertaining and enlightening, but also fascinating just to see where the origins of the country really developed. When we were out there, I, uh, uh, obviously today is that iconic day that we celebrate this sense of uh, the Declaration of Independence and all the things that fit to it. It came 442 days after the first volleys of the American Revolution. So just under, as it were, under a year and a half, when this, the, the, the revolution and the struggle to find this freedom came, they signed this Declaration of Independence. What is fascinating about that is that, uh, as I'm entitling our message this morning, The Christian Malays. you may not know what that word means, but it, there's a lot of discomfort in that struggle in birthing a new country. Uh, I want to uh, direct your attention, not only to Romans 13.5, where it talks about, that we need to submit to authorities because, not just because of judgment or the repercussions of breaking law, but also for the sake of conscience. So we spent the last three weeks looking at this idea of how conscience needs to shape the way we live under authorities, whether it's government or local authorities or even at work or in any structure that we belong to. If we're employed somewhere, we, we, we have authorities that are over us. And so the text that we want to come back to this morning takes us from Romans 13.5 to 1 Peter. We've spent a little time in there, but let me just read the text and then help us slide into this and understand that this idea of Christian malaise is uh, as real today as it ever has been. The text, starting in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21, says this, For to this you have been called. Now, obviously, he's referencing the previous verses where he talks about enduring suffering unjustly in as masters and slaves. And uh, if you bear up under it well, without retaliating, all this kinds of things, that's pleasing to God. And there's a lot of nuances to that. But having that being said, he says, "For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps." You know, I ought to, first of all, define the idea of malaise because it's probably not common table talk discussion for most of us. Um, Malaise is really this idea of feeling generally body discomfort, fatigue or unpleasantness, often the onset of illness. So as we've gone through our last year of COVID, uh, everybody experienced that in different ways. If you caught it and you were vulnerable to it, it, you went through a huge symptomatic problem where you felt this malaise, this, this illness, this malady, this discomfort of trying to deal with it. Others didn't even catch it at all. Others would have been carriers of it and had it, but it didn't affect them in the least. They didn't, would, didn't even sneeze differently than what they were doing before. So there was literally no impact. But the whole COVID thing created this whole malaise, this uncomfortableness, this this discord, this struggle to figure out how we're supposed to act around one another. Uh, With all the the struggle, one of the places that affected the most is the church. And, And as we look at the way the church responded to this, it created this malaise, this sense of uncomfortableness with everyone. And the reason for it is that it really pushed the church to a breaking point in terms of its unity. We had people falling on different sides of issues and worldviews trying to figure out how we should respond and what does it mean to live by faith and what does it mean to care for one another. And there are some churches that handled it very poorly. It literally divided churches and destroyed the fabric of fellowship and what it means to be uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and some churches just literally split over things that were related to it. Our culture hasn't helped us at all. There's been a tug-of-war between political posturing at one end and personal narcissism at the other. Uh, many churches didn't survive, but we've had this malaise, this, this malady that's hanging over our head for months, and now we are coming out of it, and so now we're friends again uh, for the most part. But, it, but the, the, the danger is, how do we handle things like that? And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that something like COVID isn't the worst thing that we can face when it comes to Christian malaise or maladies. And the way we handle this tells us a lot more about what we believe in God than what we do in believing about ourselves. And it can leave us feeling uncomfortable because we may look back and regret some things that we've said and done over the last year and a half and, and need to do some reconciliation in terms of our own lives. But this idea of malaise is almost an ambiguous feeling of mental or moral depression. And we struggled with that over this last year. Christian or not, there's many Christians that lived in high levels of anxiety and others who almost seemed indifferent to the whole thing. Some were very condescending, some were very compassionate. As we begin to work through it, there's terms like disorder and dissatisfaction and discontentedness that fit a a synonym of what we're talking about. The reason I I mention that is because the passage we're talking about, I believe, creates a spiritual malaise for us. And it's centered on the model of Christ and what he has done for us. And I think that when we begin to look at this, we need to understand at least some of the factors of why we in this culture, in this era, have often a spiritual malaise, a discomfort of what it means to live out the Christian life in the culture that we do. We're afraid of repercussions. We're afraid of what people think. We're afraid of the conflict that continues to surface in our culture over all these different issues of equality and and identity and everything else. And unless we understand our our relationship with God in very uh, rooted terms, then we're going to struggle even more. But let me point out a couple of things of why I think we struggle with this malaise in our culture. The first one goes back to the Old Testament. And I haven't usually said too much about this, but I believe this is one of the reasons we struggle and have this malaise, this discomfort and disorder. The problem is that there's many Christians who look at Old Testament promises and automatically lob them into the New Testament and these are the same thing for us. For example, one of the texts I pick in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is this. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of wine and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God in the land that he has given you. And, and so what we do is we'll look at a promise like that, and because our roots are grounded in Christian idealism and ideology and principles, we kind of go, well, that we should be able to experience the same thing they did in the Old Testament. It, we see ourselves as a Christian f- version of the Old Testament covenant with, that God had with the Jews, and, and we think that if we do the right things, whether we think of it personally or corporately, If I just do the right kinds of things, bad stuff won't happen to us. Now there's a lot of Christians who think that way even if they're not willing to admit it because I have these conversations with people all the time. Something difficult happens and the first question out of most people's mouths is, why would God allow this to happen to me? Now it's a fair question but oftentimes it's grounded in this reality that we sort of assume that if I do everything right like God said to Israel in the Old Testament, then we won't experience problems. He'll protect us, he'll make sure that we're safe, we'll flourish, we'll be rich, we'll have all this abundance of things, God will keep our enemies at bay and we won't have to worry about anything. And I think one of the problems we run into is that we import and download automatically the truths of the Old Testament and we think they automatically apply to us. So we think the idea of American Christianity, the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness, ought to be what it looks like in the Old Testament. And so we set ourselves up that God is here to simply protect our way of life, Then it needs to be filled where we're lacking nothing, we have an abundance of riches and wealth, and we can live securely and, and, frankly, be very narcissistic about it. That God is there to serve us. These are his promises. And so when that gets threatened, then we start rising up to protect God's kingdom work because we think that's how he's blessed us. Now, we can debate that all day. God has richly blessed America. But you can also see that that freedom has also corrupting America. Because everybody has the right, as it were, to do whatever's right in their own eyes, and we are now crumbling to accommodate everybody, well, almost everybody. And so when we get into this this dangerous zone of just downloading all the promises and thinking God should just treat us exactly the same way. We set ourselves up for protecting a lifestyle or a way of life that's meant to cater to us as opposed to serve God. The second element of this really is about the workplace. And let me be a little bit more tangible. God's expectations of suffering unjustly is not uncommon. And this also comes back from the idea, sometimes people will call it health and wealth, but if there's, there's a certain Christian groups that would say, well in a sense like the Old Testament, if you're doing everything right with God, and you're being obedient to Him, you won't get ill, you won't get sick, nothing bad will happen to you. And, and you, if you don't, then you simply lack the faith. And, and yet when I read the New Testament, I don't see God saying, we're, we're going to build this big, massive kingdom, at least till Christ comes back, unless you're all millennial in other forms, where you think it's already here. And then, then the idea is that the Christian's got to take over the world again and rebuild a Christian culture. So your theology makes a huge difference in this. But when, he, when we look through 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 13, we saw the context in which this verse that I read for you about Christ's model, this is the context that it was addressing. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13-17 through 17, was submitting to your governing authorities. Those who are rulers over the land in which you live. There's local authorities that are part of that as well. In 1 Peter 2, 18, he talks about servant be submissive to your masters, which for us, I believe analogically, would translate into the workplace. That when you get hired by a company and you don't own it, then you are working for someone else and you're under their authority in terms of how things get done. And when you, as you choose to live there, you're saying, I'm gonna abide by the rules here, although we've talked about there's times when our values, if they match God's values, means there's, we may not do everything that's been told of us, and we may suffer for it unjustly. And right in the middle of this, then he gives this text that we're looking at today in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 to saying, listen, the reason why at times we put up with unjust treatment and we've been treated unfairly and we're to live with it is because of the example of Christ. And I would challenge us, even though there are many horrific things that take place, moral inhumanities at the hand of of evil people, that what Christ went through bottles up enough evil and moral injustice for a lifetime. Now, just so you have the context, when he hits 1 Peter 3, he's also gonna talk about this idea of marriage. So he talks about wives, be submissive to your husbands. And then when he gets around to verse 7, he talks about husbands, I believe, submit to Christ in fulfilling your headship in relationship to your wife. So this text that Jesus is the model for falls in the context of submitting to governing authorities, to the workplace, and to marriage and family. Now there are boundaries to those discussions, but often what we're going to talk about is this malaise of living under other people's authority, the malaise of of being treated unfairly in that, is sometimes the thing we're the least tolerant of that we're not going to put up with this because on the one hand, this is not this, this. is my freedoms and right to protect myself and so be it, but we don't handle, like often Christians in other parts of the world, being handled unjustly as well as they do. We get pretty fired up if we get discriminated about, if we get handled unjustly and unfairly, that there's any kind of prejudice or discrimination. It, it can be really a tipping point for us. And so as we begin to think through that, the, the, the elements of this come down to two things that we see in Jesus' life, and I want to walk through those in a minute. God's example of suffering unjustly is the exceptional demonstration of what Christ did. And I want you to just note, if you go back to that text, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, I want you to first note all the things he didn't do. Now, I really hated even bringing this up because like, this is kind of like self-condemnation in spades, when you do this, but I want you to notice there's four things that Jesus does not do in this text. Now remember the context. Don't, it, this isn't just page on it. Remember he got spit on and he got a thorn of crowns drilled on him. He was put through kangaroo courts. His own men abandoned him. Peter denied him three times. He was hit by reeds and, and spit on and smacked and mocked and ridiculed and abused. He was dragged out and crucified on a cross. And here's four things that Jesus never did in that process. The first thing it says is that he never committed sin. I tell you, if people treated me like that, I'd be probably coming up swinging and taking anybody on if they got this abusive. And before you feel too proud of yourself, I bet you you would too. The second thing is that there was no deceit in his mouth. It's interesting that when Jesus was physically helpless to do anything, so to speak, from a human perspective, what's the first thing we do? We start shooting our mouths off. We start name-calling and ridiculing and condemning and cursing. It's easy for, I mean, just think, you drive down the road and someone cuts you off in front of you, what do you do? Well, you, you can either ram them off the road with your car, but most of us are smart enough not to do that, but what do we do? We mouth off. There goes another idiot cutting me off. Get out of the way. We have this whole conversation with ourselves and hopefully God's not listening. (laughs) And it's a really good thing they're not listening because what they'll do is road they'll hit the brakes and they'll take you on. So he didn't, there's no deceit. Jesus didn't try to manipulate his way out. He didn't try to be deceptive and lie or manipulate the situation. The third thing is he did not return evil for evil. It says he did not revile when he was reviled. Now, I, I know it's impossible for us to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, but in, in some respects, that's what you need to do. All the threats and the mocking and the ridicule and the abuse and the verbiage that was spilled onto him I mean, I don't know any of us that wouldn't just turn around and start verbally just trying to destroy them just to protect ourselves. And Jesus actually had the ability to call a legion of angels and decimate the whole thing and bring it to an abrupt end, and he chose not to do that. And the fourth thing is, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. You know, I I love watching kids grow up in families because when one gets the advantage over the other, the other one's like, We're going to war. We're going to win this. I'm going to destroy you. I mean, it's just wired into us. We, in ourselves, don't have the capacity to endure unjust treatment. We can tolerate little things, but I tell you, when the rubber really hits the root, and we are really unjustly treated, and people have broken trust and sinned against us and reviled us and ridiculed us and mocked us, Boy, I tell you, we either fold up like a tent and think we're worthless, or we go to war and we're gonna take everyone on. And we have the ability to justify both. But, But Christ's example is remarkable, and this is what creates the malaise for us. We're kind of like, what, Jesus is telling us that we ought to endure this kind of stuff? That's not the American way. We take them to court, and we put them in their place. And so notice what Jesus says in Luke 2, or 20, I'm sorry, Luke 23. And I just this puts a capstone on how Jesus acted under this kind of abuse. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and this is Jesus' response. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Are you kidding me? I don't know a human being alive that would take this track. Jesus obviously didn't have some identity issues. He knew exactly who he was. He, he knew who God his Father was, and he understood God's purpose. And he put up with all this garbage And this is his response. Father, forgive them. I mean, I don't know how to get my mind around that reality. It is staggering in every sense of the word. It is astounding, and from our perspective, it looks lunacy. And Christ is exceptional because, one, He was doing it for you and I. That's what the text. he wasn't doing it for himself, he wasn't just trying to prove something of his own abilities and his endurance and his resilience and how tough he was, he was doing it for you and me. It's really hard to be a narcissist and endure suffering. It's really hard to be a narcissist where the only person you really, really care about when it gets down to core values is yourself and endure suffering because I'm not putting up with this. I care way more about my, my comfort, my ability, my happiness, my joy, my, my success to put up with unfair treatment. It just, it's never gonna happen. And unfortunately, you'll run into Christians who will do this that, that they're never gonna tolerate unjust suffering because they're way too important to themselves. But this is the challenge that he gives to us. And so let me highlight three things about what Christ does here on the positive sense so that we can see it. First of all, he is, we are told that he's our example. He suffered for us, not himself, and, he, and we are to follow his example. Now, just so you don't lose the context, if this applies anywhere, it applies in submitting to governing authorities, and it applies to the workplace, and it applies in marriage if 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and it also belongs to the community if we keep extending the context, but this is the specific context that he's forged this in. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply to other situations, but he is our example, not what other people do, not how the bosses behave, not how the guy It's following Christ. He's the example of how we are to put up with that. He is also what I'm calling our enlightenment. We are to walk in his footsteps and imitate him. Our focus needs to be on, not on our circumstances, but on Christ. It's like Peter walking out on the water. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was fine. As soon as he started looking at the storm, he sunk like a 20-pound rock. Well, 200-pound rock, sorry. And so, he becomes this enlightenment that Christ endured horrific evil, horrific moral evil and abuse. Now, you and I, just so we, we can't deal with all of it, there's no way I think that God just saying we're supposed to put up with every horrific evil and live with it. So unfortunately we've got marriages where there's massive abuse and we don't do anything because we're just supposed to endure it. That's nonsense. But the, but the reality is is that in most of our experiences we're not gonna be treated like Jesus was. There are some who go through evils that would be really similar to the things that Jesus went through. But the one thing I want you to notice is he is our empowerment. He kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this is kind of the crux of the message. I could probably turn this into three or four weeks if I wanted to, but fortunately we're just gonna deal with it here this morning and we'll just have to live with it. But what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously when he was suffering unjustly. The idea of entrusting something to someone is to hand over to or to convey something to someone, particularly a right or an authority. So when Jesus is going through this suffering, it tells us that he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. What does that mean? Well, he's acknowledging who God is and God's purpose, and he recognizes that, but he's saying, listen, I'm getting treated by all these people in this horrific ways, God the Father, I'm gonna trust that someday you will deal with all this in a perfectly righteous way in your perfect timing. See, Jesus didn't have to control the situation or fight back because, one, he knew this was part of God's purpose for you and I to have any kind of hope at all. But the reality is, is that he's saying, Lord, I'm not gonna try to deal with this myself. I'm gonna trust that you will deal with this ultimately in a perfect way. You see where the malaise starts to come in for us? See, when we get treated unjustly and unfairly, we're gonna deal with it because we're no pushover. We're not going gonna to live by the theology of the doormat where we're going to let people trample on us. There's no way. We're going to stand up and fight and we're going to tell people where we're coming from and where they can go. But I want to challenge you that our ability to endure any kind of unjust suffering is directly related to our willingness to keep on entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. You show me a Christian who cannot entrust to God their circumstances and their life path where they're at, especially when it comes to unjust suffering. I'll show you a person who who basically believes, God, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you can deal with this properly, so I'm gonna do it. If we do not believe God will bring about justice in the injustice and unfairness that we we experience, we will do what Jesus didn't do. What we'll do is we'll make threats when they threaten us or because they've sinned against us, that gives me permission to sin against them. If they make statements to me, I'll turn around and revile them and I'll put them in their place and show them who's boss. If I suffer at their hand, I'll make threats I'll get even with you. And, and so we'll do the very things Jesus did not do because we can't come to a point where we can trust that God will ultimately ever deal with this, so we're gonna do it. And you show me a person who can't trust that God will deal with it and I'll show you a person on a war path. Now, the other one is God's encouragement to us when we're suffering unjustly is that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Is this why I read the Luke passage? Is because Jesus, even in the midst of being crucified, came up with a statement that wasn't just for the presses. He said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And you and I would sit back and say, that's the stupidest comment in the world. They know exactly what they're doing. But Jesus looks at humanity differently than we do. We think people are smart enough to be able to figure out this morality by themselves. And when you exclude God from the process, Christians can't even figure out the right things to do. And forgiving others is directly related to our ability to trust that our Father in Heaven will respond and execute perfect justice in His purpose and in His timing. He may execute justice immediately in the temporal finite existence of our circumstances or he may wait till they stand before him at the gates of heaven as it were and reiterate a statement like Matthew seven. I never knew you. But again, our ability to forgive others is directly related to our ability that we trust God that he'll look after it. They're not getting away with anything. They might be from our limited perspective because our heart is raging with we want justice. And if we don't think God's gonna give it in the right time, in the right way, in in a proper way, what we'll try to do is inflict our own version of justice on people. And a person who can't trust God is a person who absolutely will not forgive the people around them. I can't forgive because I don't really trust that God will ultimately deal with this, so somebody's got to do something. And the problem is, is that over time it just turns into a corrosive spirit and bitterness. Just so that we're reminded about this, Matthew 6:12 embedded within the framework of the Lord's prayer, doesn't say, forgive us our debts. It says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If you go to Matthew 18, this is the, the king who forgave the servant this massive debt that he owed him, and the servant begged for it. He says, please be patient with me. The king had compassion on him and forgave him And then the servant goes out and throws one of his fellow servants in jail because he won't pay him back a debt. So the king hauls him back in. And it says this, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father, Jesus says, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So if you miss anything else, don't miss this. The the Christian malaise for us is how do we trust God when we're suffering unjustly? That's really awkward for us. That's uncomfortable. That's almost a malady to us because when we want to take over. We want to fix it. We want to get even. We want to carry out our own immediate justice. The malady for many of us is that when someone sins against us, am I going to forgive? Because forgiving is probably one of the most excruciating things that we can do from a human perspective because i got to take my hands off and i got to basically say to God, all right, this is in your hands. And that's our, mala- that's our Christian malay. I don't think COVID holds a candle to those two issues. Because that's what will make us more uncomfortable. One of the biggest challenges in the Christian life is this, am I willing to endure when I'm treated unjustly and can I forgive like Jesus did hanging on a cross? There's no way we're gonna say they don't know what they're doing. That's just just flat out beyond our ability, I think. And so it, it becomes this really uncomfortable, almost debilitating kind of emotional feeling and spiritual struggle that we have is how do I deal with life when I get treated badly by others? And even if it goes beyond that to the point where people sin against us, can I really entrust my life and circumstances to God to the point where I can forgive? 1 Peter 2 goes on to explain more the reason why for this. He himself bore our sins in, the body on the, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So He, he reminds them immediately, as much as you have a problem with your boss or the government, you've got to remember that Christ died for your stuff. And he immediately, in a sense, reminds them of the gospel. God, the gospel isn't just to get into heaven and then I'm on my own to figure it out. The gospel is something critical for us every single day of our Christian lives. Because I always need to be reminded that my best effort, my best performance, my greatest goodness on my own will still land me in a Christless eternity in hell before a holy and perfect God. And before I go to war with the people around me, i got to remember that Christ first forgave me, even though from a human perspective it's like, well, I don't do stuff like that. and our conscience has to be bathed in the nurturing presence of the Spirit of God in such a way that he's gonna whisper in our ears, kinda like, you gotta trust the Father. You gotta learn to trust the Father. Do you trust that he will look after this? Either in the person of Christ or standing at the final judgment, are you willing to trust that he's got your back? Because God wants us to live according to the righteousness that Christ modeled in his example when he suffered unjustly. He wants our enlightenment to be that we're to follow in his footsteps and imitate his character. He wants our empowerment to be not that I can grit my teeth and I can take whatever you can dish out. He wants it to be, you know what, I can be a person of peace because I've got a heavenly father who's got my back. And I'm going to choose to trust him for it. Notice he goes on, by his wounds you have been healed. You know, I don't know anyone in this room, including myself for sure, that isn't in some respects on an ongoing journey with God's grace for healing. I don't care whether you got it when you were a kid, whether you got it from your parents or your siblings, whether you got it from your best friend who betrayed you, whether it happened in college where you, people took advantage of you and exploited drugs and alcohol. I know it's impossible to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you for this stuff and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to endure the stuff that i am gone through. I'm gonna, I need healing. It doesn't there's a statement that God heals us ultimately when we, we step into, through the gospel into the family of God. He separates us from this old manner of life and he begins this healing process with this new creation of who we are in our, the core of our being. But most of us need healing to go on for the rest of our lives. Because by his wounds we are healed because people have given us Wounds that we can't heal on our own and time won't fix them. For you were all straying like sheep. (laughs) You could say, well, no, I've never strayed. I grew up in a Christian home. I I went to Sunday school. I did what my parents told me to do. I had a glitch when I was 14 but I don't have a lot of stuff God needs to forgive me for. Well, that being said, you might want to check again with them. Bad stuff can happen to us. You might want to pull the Old Testament theology and say, well, if, God, if I'm really living the way, God will make life perfectly peaceful and I'll never have any problems. But bad stuff can happen to Christians. God forbid that Christians end up hurting other Christians or treating each other unjustly, but it happens. And I want to leave you with this statement. Christians are far from perfect. To pretend to be perfect is lunacy. But we are on a journey where we are Learning how to follow Christ's footsteps, to imitate Jesus, to keep on entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father as we live in a broken and messed up world. Do you know that kind of God that ministers to your own heart and spirit even in really difficult circumstances? You know, if you need something to do to sort of spin the validity of this, go home and read Job or Ecclesiastes. The heartbeat of our lives is that we are living for something greater than as important as it is. We're living something for more important than just the American dream. We're living for the creator of the universe and the God who chooses to call us Father because of everything that Christ put up with. And it would seem to me and incumbent upon us that while we can't endure and have the capacity to endure the same thing Christ did, that hopefully because we're willing to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father, and we're willing to walk with the Spirit of God who's in us, and we're willing to trust his word that it's more important than my opinion, that we can find peace in the midst of uh, chaos, and even when we're treated unjustly, and even when people hurt us, we can find peace with our Heavenly Father. July 4th, Independence Day, came out of tremendous struggle. It came out of war. It came out of conflict and disagreement. And while we don't live in the same nation in some respects that we think they started, God still calls us to be citizens of heaven and citizens of America. And he wants us to be a light in a dark world. And if Jesus could put up with, he did, what, with what he did, I encourage you to consider enduring unjust suffering with a conscience that's connected to your Heavenly Father. Imitate Christ, rely on the Spirit of God, and entrust your life and your circumstances to a God who's got your back. Pray with me, if you will. Father, you know, it's easy for us to convince ourselves that if we do everything right, then bad stuff won't happen to us. We don't verbalize it very loud even to our own hearts, but our mind tinkers with that. And the danger there is that we start setting expectations for how you're supposed to serve us that really aren't biblical. And it teaches us at times that you need to trust us rather than we need to entrust ourselves to you. Father, I... Know that we're all broken in lots of different ways. And we have lots of circumstances and people to blame for how we got to where we're at, including ourselves and the choices that sometimes we've made. But I pray that we will learn to imitate Jesus, to be empowered by the fact that we can entrust our lives to you and you're not ignorant of what we're going through. And help our walk in daily life, even through the pain and the circumstances, reflect that we really do trust you, that you have our back, and you will deal with all unrighteousness and evil perfectly, righteously, and because of your Son. We thank you for the hope that you give us, even in a broken world. Help us to live in a way that reflects that kind of faith. And for this we pray in Christ's name.